0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Dr. Alfredo Quinones Hinojosa was once a young boy in Mexico dreaming of opportunity in America. Through drive, determination, and the kindness of others, he made his way from humble beginnings to medical school. On today's program, we'll learn the story of becoming Dr. Q.
2: He heard an interview that I did, and I was a Harvard Medical student. He found me in the database, and Gosh. he said, I got to meet that guy. came all the way from California because I want the rights to your life and I said I need to do something before you do that.
3: Also on the program how the measles virus is being used to fight cancer
1: and the difficult task of discussing the cost of cancer care with your provider.
3: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Tracy, imagine for a moment. You're a young boy growing up poor in Mexico, but you dream big. And your dreams actually come true. You come to America to work, to learn English, and to go to college.
3: The young man didn't stop there. On to medical school. And now that little boy is a world-renowned neurosurgeon at Mayo Clinic. Does it sound like a Hollywood movie? Well, <laughs> sure it <does>. will be. <laughs> Joining us on the phone from the Mayo Clinic campus in Florida to share the story of becoming Dr. Q is Dr. Alfredo Quinones-Ginosa. Welcome to the program, Dr. Q. It's great to meet you.
2: Well, thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Dr. Chives, for having me. I am quite an honor, uh, and it, this is a, an amazing dream, I believe, for me to be here at the Mayo Clinic.
1: Yes, yeah, so dre- <laughs> dreams do come true.
2: Yes, they do actually. They take a little bit of work sometimes, but they do. Yes. Yeah, so when did you,
1: when did you start uh, dreaming about leaving Mexico and coming to the United States and getting an education? Isn't it Mexico? Yeah.
2: Yes, Doctor Chives is taking the Spanish. I can tell.
1: Well, you know what? I had a patient the other day, and I said, "Where are you from?" And she said, "Mexico." So I, that's how I
2: know. That's great. It is from Mexico actually, and it's this. Uh, it's beautiful. Well, i tell you, Doctor Chives, I um I grew up as. Uh, Many people know, and very humble beginnings. My parents uh, didn't have uh, an education, but they were visionaries. They were very hardworking people. And as a little boy, I remember I used to see my uncles and and, and relatives come to the United States as uh, there was a program in the uh, the 50s and 60s. It was called the Braceros. Those are the people who used to come. And work in the fields. And a lot of my relatives, that's how they started coming to the United States, working in the fields as migrant farm workers. So I grew up as a little boy hearing about these stories. And uh, one of those stories was the brother of my mother who also tried to uh, take that track between Mexico and the United States uh, many years ago in the 60s. And, like many people, probably got trapped in the middle of the desert, and they just never made it back. So we hear the stories and I knew it was challenging. I knew it was a daunting sort of uh, experience. But as a little boy, I uh start thinking about those things probably, and somewhere in our DNA it a uh, uh, little nick happened, and uh, you know a little mutation happened <laughs>
3: <laughs> so how old were you when you came to America?
2: Well, when I came um Uh, definitely it turns out that I had come a few times as a young teenager the very first time I came to work as a migrant farm worker believe it or not was when I was 14 years old Hmm. but when I and I only came for a couple of months in the summer but the very uh, first time that I came, definitely that was in 1987. I was 19 years old.
1: 19. And, and was that uh, when you came as a migrant worker? Did you say to yourself, "I want to come back here some someday," or what was the motivation that, that brought you back the second time?
2: Well, you know, Doctor Shives, I um, my very first time it was a very simple thing. My my mom and dad were struggling. Uh, it was uh, one of those things where we didn't really have much and sometimes not even food on the table. So I wanted to come and work and make a little bit of money and bring it back. And I um, I had that dream to help my parents. And that's really seeing opportunities. And this is a different time in the United States. Remember, this is the time where people who were working in the fields, they were welcome to come and do a lot of this hard labor of uh, working in the middle of, this field, so I I was welcome, and I uh, said I'm going to go back and make a little bit of money and give it to my parents. And uh, eventually, by the time I was 19, I said I'm going to go and I'm going to work for a couple of years, and I'm going to go back to uh, Mexico and uh, and uh, go continue with my education. And here I am today. I never went back.
1: So so you came to the United States when you were 19. You, you said you were going to work a couple of years, then you went back to Mexico to get more education? Or did you do all of your education here? And how did that happen?
2: Well, at first, I, I graduated when I was 18 years old as an elementary school teacher in Mexico. And I uh, I, I believe that education is not valid in the United States. So I came as an undocumented migrant farm worker, and I said to myself, I'm going to work for a couple of years, save money, and then I'm going to go back and continue my much higher education at that time. And uh, that was the original intention. What subsequently happened is that you begin to realize that uh, what many people see as the American dream, when you come in as an uh, uh, undocumented migrant farm worker making $3.25 an hour... It's gonna be very, very challenging to accumulate any significant amount of money. I came when I was 14, I worked, went back. And then when I was 19, I came permanently to spend a couple of years here in the United States thinking I was gonna make, you know, a fortune. Lots of money, as I said. And when you start getting paid $3.35 an hour, it's a, it's a little bit more challenging. So I said, okay, maybe it may, may take me a little bit longer. But this is 1987, 1988. I began to take English as a second language in a community college. Ah, oh, okay. Night. There and, you go. And then I that led me to UC Berkeley by 1991.
3: And then you uh, became a U.S. citizen in 97.
2: Yeah, by nineteen ninety four I went to Harvard for medical school and by nineteen ninety seven I was becoming a US citizen.
3: And I've always wondered how is it that we add Hollywood into this? But I see uh in the prep for this interview that you wrote a book. That's how it all came that was the link
2: to Hollywood. Well it was actually it was before that. Oh, okay. The book came out in two thousand eleven, The Link to Hollywood. They uh Jeremy Kleiner, who is the vice president of uh of Plan B, the <laughs> company that built that made uh, many movies. But the last four, they've been nominated, and two of them have been Academy Award winners. So wow. 12 Years a Slave, Big Short, Selma, and uh, Moonlight. Wow. So way before he made four back-to-back Academy Award winner type of movies, he came in 2007. I was just two years out. I was about to be promoted to an associate professor at Hopkins in two years, so everything was happening very fast, and he heard an interview that I did an NPR with Debbie Elliott on a Sunday, all things considered, (laughs) and he said, I got to meet that guy, so he called me, he was a Harvard graduate, I was a Harvard medical student, he found me in the database, and I said, I got to meet that guy, and he came all the way from California, he was a young guy, he was starting in that company, you know that Jennifer Anston and uh, and Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt had built yeah and uh, and I says I want the life to you, the rights to your life and I said I need to do something before you do that so <laughs>
1: <laughs> I gotta make this a little better story yeah. oh my gosh <laughs> and so then you did a neurosurgery residency after that
2: well then uh, the residency was between uh, 1999 and 2005 okay. so he, I was a Hopkins. I was 2005, I started Hopkins, and then 2007. Hopkins, where's yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> Hopkins, I, we have no idea. <laughs> That's a wonderful place, wonderful yeah. place, as you know. And uh, and in so many ways, you know, it was not until I came to Mayo that I decided already right, we're ready. Now, now I've done something good.
1: <laughs> yeah, good for you. All right, so we're talking about the story of Dr. Q. He is now a neurosurgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. He grew up in Mexico. He had a dream, and he made the dream come true. we got to take a short break, but when we, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Dr. Q's work as a neurosurgeon in Mayo Clinic Jacksonville, and how he is going to hopefully cure brain cancer.
3: Oh, that's a great way to end this story. <laughs> You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
3: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: We're talking on the telephone with Dr. Q, the story of Dr. Q. Uh, He is now a neurosurgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. He's told us how he was able to get out of Mexico, how he obtained an education in the United States, and how they're going to make a movie about him. Yeah. (laughs) So when are we going to see the movie?
2: Well, I, uh, I'm i hoping that the script is almost done. They've been working on it uh, now for about a year. And I, I, I think that this is probably going to be one of those things that maybe they roll early in 2018. I honestly don't have control of that. As you know, these are very complex things. The only thing that I do have uh, control is the right to review the final script. But we've been working. I mean, this is a very respectable company that as you know they've done amazing things telling stories is their passion
3: and so uh do you get any say in the actor that will portray you in the film
2: uh, we we joke around that uh <laughs> with my kids my kids make fun of me because i am uh, i'm not a very tall handsome or muscular man but uh one day my son said to me so dad who's going to play you and uh and i said this is my opportunity to make fun of my son and and make him you know make him realize that his old man is someone important. I said, son, they want to make it real. It's going to be someone tall, muscular, and handsome. Someone like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He started laughing and says, Dad, is going to be Danny DeVito. <laughs> oh, my
1: gosh. That's so funny. That's horrible. You know, our producer, who is a female, wants to know if you have met Brad Pitt, and I want to know if you've met Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> but they're the producers of the of the film, right?
2: Brad Pitt is the company. Is their company, Plan B, and they partner with Disney because, obviously, uh The real brains, uh, the person, uh, the two people is uh, Jeremy Kleiner and Didi Gardner. They're really the vice presidents of the company. They're amazing storytellers, and they are really the ones who have been working diligently and doing the script. And I'm sure they're going to start selecting all kinds of people to do the project soon. Well, how did you
3: get interested in uh, working, doing brain surgery? I mean, you are, you are uh, coming to this country, you're picking vegetables in the field, and all of a sudden you think, I want to be a brain surgeon.
2: Oh, this is amazing, Tracy. As you can imagine, things happen. Uh, life is like a, it's a series of events that are connected. It's difficult to find exactly how one thing leads to another. But it was clear to me that uh, I was destined to be here at the Mayo Clinic one day uh, doing what I do as a brain surgeon, as a scientist, as a Mayo professor, which most people, you know, they they realize what a great and a great honor it is to carry the history of the Mayo brothers. But things happen for a reason. I mean, the, the reality is that I was interested in neurosciences, which is what I did when I was at UC Berkeley. I was interested in understanding how the brain is connected, which ended up being my thesis when I was at the uh, University of California, Berkeley in the neurosciences, the effects of mu opioid receptors and the long term potentiation from the lateral and rhinal cortex to the nucleus accumbens. that was the title of my thesis so I was well, bear, I,
1: I don't know what that means, but it's me, impressive me,
2: me me neither that <laughs> <Chavez>, believe me <laughs> but it was but I got interested. But it was not until i was a third year medical student and i was at harvard that i saw a patient that was awake having brain surgery mm. and i felt that my knees buckled a little bit and i realized oh my dear lord this is an amazing thing that is going on <laughs> and how can i potentially one day be part of this and that's where i am i mean it's it's, it's, it's sometimes it's opportunities it's sometimes being around people and sometimes being inspired. In that case, I was inspired by that patient when I saw that patient, you know, having uh, his brain stimulated and a a tumor being resected.
1: Hmm. Isn't it interesting that, and I I truly uh, agree with you and think that a lot of success in life is being in the right place at the right time, and fortunately you were. So uh, you, you do brain surgery now, you operate on brain, brain tumors, and then tell us about what research you're doing.
2: Well, so this is what we do, and uh, this morning I was actually with our colleagues here at the Mayo Clinic doing a press release of a paper that is uh, getting accepted, and I think that the best way that I could describe it is um, uh, the greatest gift that I am given is the ability to be able to care for patients and, and, and to be able to, to take care of them, and somewhere along the line, I realized that the research that we do in the laboratory, it's an opportunity to give them hope. For them to know that the brain cancer they're fighting, which is what I do, is that uh, they are becoming part of history. So what I do is, in the operating room, we collect the tissue, and then instead of uh, just discarding that tissue, we bring it into the laboratory through spatial protocols that we have designed over the last decade to be able to do it safely. And we have gotten a lot of funding from a lot of resources, including the federal government, through the NIH, because as you can imagine, these things that take a lot of resources, and I surround myself by a lot of bright young people. So we go ahead and, uh, and begin to study that tissue, establish cell lines, we establish avatars, and most recently we began to use biomedical engineering to be able to design and manipulate these cancer cells that exist in the brain, so that way we can put the brakes because they move really fast pathologically speaking, they move so fast, and my role is being, I need to put the brakes on that migration, that movement of cancer, and that is exactly what we do in our laboratory.
1: So, uh, truly, uh, there are a lot of uh, cancers of the brain that you can't remove, or you can potentially remove a a portion of them, or maybe all of them, but it's not curative. So, we need different treatments to to cure a lot of, of patients who have malignancies of the brain.
2: That's exactly right, Tom, because... The the limitations that we have, and and, and we have to remember that that is true also for other organs, the lung, the breast, the skin, that uh, sometimes we can do surgery. You're a surgeon. This is what we do. We can cut things. But the problem is that many of these cells, they have escaped already our ability to resect them surgically, so they migrate, and we need to devise new ways of attacking these cells, these cancerous cells and that's exactly what we do in our laboratory. So there are a
1: lot of people working on on the same thing that you're working on. Do you collaborate uh, with the people here at Mayo in Rochester?
2: Well that's one of the beauties about the Mayo Clinic is <clears throat> we have an enterprise. So the three departments, the all the department, the neurosciences are connected, not only the basic science, but also neurology and neurosurgery and we have tremendous, an amazing ability to collaborate, to learn from each other. We have meetings together. We have biobanks, registries that we are sharing among each other that allow us to be able to take uh, advantage of what Mayo is, which is an amazing institution with incredible depth. And when you put all the three campuses, Arizona, Florida, and Rochester, you have an amazing uh, opportunity to change the world and find cures. And we take advantage of that. And I guess, we work very closely with the three different campuses. Doctor Q, is there going to be a cure for brain cancer someday? I have, I have no doubt, Tracy. I think that you're beginning to see cures for several diseases. Yeah. I have know that. I'm hoping that it's going to be within our lifetime, um, but I do believe the most important thing that I tell our patients is that uh, as long as we keep doing what we're doing, as long as we keep. You know, working hard, not only through uh, NIH funding, but also also through philanthropic efforts. And that's something that where Mayo can play a very important role in finding cures, not only for brain cancer, but also for breast, lung, skin, every other cancer that affects. But I think, I am confident that within our lifetime, we're going to see this disease becoming more chronic rather than devastating, which is what it is today.
1: Wow. Well, you know what? I hope you're right, and we wish you all the success in the world, and it's been so great to, to talk to you. We've been talking to Dr. Alfredo Quinones-Sennios about his incredible life story that's being made into a feature film, and more importantly, the work he's doing to find a cure for brain cancer. Dr. Q, thanks for being with us. Great to have you on the program.
2: Thank you, Dr. Shives, and Thank you, Tracy. I am very honored, and I look forward to many more interactions in the future. <laughs>
3: we'll thank see you you on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. (laughs) Thank
2: you. See you, Dr. Q. Take care, guys.
3: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn more about using biological therapies to treat cancer.
1: And later on in the program, the difficult task of discussing cancer care costs. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. The World Health Organization estimates that one billion young people worldwide could be at risk of hearing loss due to unsafe listening practices. Nearly half of people ages 12 to 35 in middle and high-income countries are exposed to unsafe levels of sound from personal audio devices. The 60-60 rule for safer listening could help protect your child's hearing, says Dr. Kelly Conroy, a Mayo Clinic
4: audiologist. One of the major issues we're seeing right now are children that have listened to mp3 players or ipods very loudly conroy says the small audio devices can produce big sound and you shouldn't assume that your child's volume is set at a safe level the best thing that parents can do is actually limit to the volume on these iPods and MP3 players.
0: You have to dig into the settings to find it, but an iPhone allows you to set a maximum volume for music. You can even prevent your child from changing the limit you choose. Other devices offer similar features. As for where to
4: set the volume... So one of the rules is called the 60-60 rule. The first 60 is for 60% of the maximum volume. You have them listen to the iPod at 60 or that range and also only for 60 minutes. And she suggests your child listen with headphones not the smaller earbuds. Earbuds go directly into the ear canal. Both can be damaging but the headphones are better than the earbuds.
0: And in other news, do you want to improve your heart health but don't know where to start? You don't have to make big changes to affect your heart health. Even small basic steps can have dramatic benefits. The simple Eat 5 Move 10 Sleep eight plan might be right for you. Dr. Rekha Mancad, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, explains the system. She says first, eat five. That means five or more servings of fruits and vegetables a day to boost your heart health. Move 10, add at least 10 minutes of moderately intense physical activity to what you do every day. Now government recommendations say 30 minutes or more, but the bottom line is even 10 minutes makes a difference. Just 60 to 90 minutes a week of physical activity can reduce your heart disease risk by up to half. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Take the stairs, take a walk, just get moving. As you become more active, you can try to increase your total amount of activity each day last sleep eight quality sleep is good for your heart for two weeks try to get eight hours of good quality sleep each night yes each person's sleep needs vary slightly but eight is a good number to shoot for all of these tips eat five move ten sleep eight are meant to be tried for two weeks before you move on to more established healthy heart plans but there's nothing wrong with continuing this quick start for longer periods the point is to get started with something healthy and keep at it for the mayo clinic news network i'm vivian williams
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. You know, your body's immune system fights invaders, things like germs and viruses and parasites, all that bad stuff. But unfortunately, some cancer cells have this ability to evade or to hide from our immune system or to disable our immune system or make it ineffective in some way. But there are new forms of cancer treatment known as biological therapies that are harnessing and coaxing the body's powerful immune system to actually recognize cancer cells for what they are and wipe them out. exciting stuff. It is amazing. One such treatment,
3: a viral therapy using the measles virus, fires up the immune system and directs it toward the unwanted cancer cells. This type of viral therapy has shown promise in treating several types of cancer by preventing or slowing tumor growth or preventing the spread of cancer to other organs. Here to discuss using viral therapy to treat cancer is oncologist Dr. Eva Galanis. Dr. Galanis is the leader of the Gene and Virus Therapy Program at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Galanis. It's great to meet you.
5: Thank you very much for the invitation.
1: Dr. Galanis, so great to see you. So great to have you on the, uh, on the program. And it's got to be pretty exciting that in your lab, you are developing something that is better, more effective at treating cancer.
5: Uh, I, I should say that it's not just my lab. It's a huge effort at the Mayo Clinic at the Department of Molecular Medicine. A number of very talented investigators have come together with the goal of uh, being able to use uh, viruses to treat cancer, but also modify cells uh, to make them uh, more effective th- uh, treatments for cancer. Are viral therapy and immunotherapy the same thing? So this is a very good question. Um, So if if we go back to the definition, viral therapy, as um, Tom alluded to, is essentially using uh, viruses that preferentially infect and replicate um, in cancer cells and kill cancer cells. Um, Immunotherapy, as you know, is the form of cancer treatment that stimulates the patient's own body, own immune system to fight cancer. So, at the beginning, when we started working on that approximately 20 years ago, we thought that these two modalities are completely separate. Then, after many clinical trials and also preclinical work, we have been able to discover that Cancer cells um, infected with viruses elicit these danger signals, and these danger signals stimulate the immune system system. to more effectively recognize and attack cancer cells. So uh, virotherapy, in addition to have a direct destructive effect on cancer cells, it is also a very effective form of immunotherapy.
1: So you're giving the patients a a virus so that the virus not only grows in the patient, but also in the cancer cells. And then when that happens, then the body's immune system can recognize it as something it's bad and wants to get rid of. So the body kills the virus plus the cancer cell?
5: Excellent. So these viruses are actually are engineered or selected for their ability to very selectively replicate and kill cancer cells w- 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 while actually do not affect at all normal cells.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. Wow. So, so is that why you call it targeted therapy?
5: Correct. It's a form of targeted therapy. Exactly. And um, as a result of that, um, you are correct, when the the, uh, virus replicates in cancer cells, the immune system would still attack the cells. And this is actually one of the ways. So presentation of cancer antigens in the context of this foreign viral antigens that makes that a very effective form of immunotherapy. Is this
3: still in the it's being tested phase or is it ready to be part of what is offered in conjunction with chemotherapy and radiation that you can also now add uh, viral therapy to that? Or are we still testing?
5: So um, again, and this is an excellent question. This is another form of therapy and similarly to other cancer treatments, sometimes can be administered as single modalities and a lot of the work of uh, clinical development is focusing on that because, of course, we want to be able to characterize this approach as a single modality in order to also know how to best combine. Uh, but then there is also a lot of work where we combine viruses with immunotherapy agents, for example, immune checkpoint inhibitors that have been approved for other indications, and a new trial uh, will um, soon occur And sarcoma, and I know Tom is treating a lot of sarcomas, uh, will actually test a virus in combination with radiation therapy to increase the cure rate of newly diagnosed sarcoma patients. Hmm.
1: So how do you know what virus to use? How do you know which one is going to grow uh, in the cancer cell?
5: In order to develop a clinical trial, um, there is a lot of preclinical work that has to happen before. And as part of this preclinical work, we characterize the specific characteristics of the cancer cells. Do they express the receptor for the respective viruses? And also, what is the response response? to the viruses in vitro and in vivo. And we use all this information in order to make the selection. Going back to the measles virus, a great thing about using this platform is that it infects pretty much every tumor type we have tested. And we um, have looked into mechanisms and we think that in part, this is because two of the virus receptors are overexpressed in cancer cells the cancer cells use the viral one of the viral receptors as one of the ways to evade the immune system so now we use that as the trojan horse to allow the virus to enter and make it more specific for cancer cells.
1: Wow, incredible. By the way, uh, for our uh, audience, our listeners, in vitro means in the lab or in the test tube or in the Petri dish. In vivo means in, in the body. Yes, thank you. Yeah, well, fabulous. It's got to be intensely uh, interesting. Now, when, when the, the story that came out a couple of years ago about the patient who had multiple myeloma, the lady yeah. that had such a big tumor yes. on her forehead that she named it, uh, and then they gave her this uh, virus, yes. and... Uh, the tumor went away. Was that the same virus? Uh,
5: so the, this patient was treated with measles virus, and at this point, she continues being disease-free. She so, is. So this is uh, this is amazing, oh, and of course, awesome. she's a wonderful advocate of this. Yeah, effort. we
3: interviewed her. She was so
5: great. But but in addition to this, we have other patients with other tumor types who have been. Uh, benefiting from these approaches. And as the next step in talking about clinical trial development, we are now conducting a randomized trial in ovarian cancer patients, essentially randomizing patients uh, between measles virus and the physician's chemotherapy of choice. Mm. And, of course, that's the next step towards thinking down the road about the possibility of regulatory approval of these agents.
3: We have about 30 seconds left. To tell us about using stem
5: cells. This is actually another approach where we um, infect the patient's own uh, stem cells deriving from their fat tissue with the virus and administer them to the patient. This is, again, patients with ovarian cancer, the reason being that this way the virus is protected by the immune system because it's carried by the cells. Also, these cells have this very interesting property of homing, going, where all tumor activity happens and this way we have a very targeted way to deliver our viruses.
1: Incredible. I'm glad that was the last question because it's already starting to get a little complicated (laughs) for me. (laughs) (laughs) Mayo Clinic Oncologist, Cancer Specialist, Dr. Eva Galana. She is also leader of the Gene and Virus Therapy Program at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us.
3: Thank you so very much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, how to talk to your doctor
1: about the cost of your cancer care you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network welcome back to mayo clinic radio i'm dr tom shives and i'm tracy mccray when you were a loved one is given a diagnosis of cancer the last thing on your mind is probably how much it's all going to cost a recent research study at mayo clinic reviewed more than 500 recorded conversations between physicians and their patients and here's what they found Fewer than one-third of these discussions talked about the cost of cancer care. Now, just as troubling when patients did raise the questions of cost, like, doctor, uh, do you have any idea how much this treatment might cost? <laughs> Only 60% of the time did the doctors in this study seem to acknowledge that it could indeed be a problem for the patient and the family. You probably didn't know either. No. They probably didn't. Since cancer
3: patients are three times more likely to declare bankruptcy than people with other chronic ailments, conversations about cost are important. Here to discuss financial toxicity of cancer care is Mayo Clinic internist and researcher, Dr. Rama Warsami. Welcome to the program,
1: Dr. Warsami.
6: Thank you for having me. This is wonderful.
1: So good to have you on the uh, program. So getting cancer anywhere in the world, I guess, but particularly in the United States can be a costly proposition, can it?
6: Significantly, yes. So um, it's uh, expensive from the very beginning, from the diagnosis and consultation all the way
3: throughout until hospice or end of care. Just the term financial toxicity of cancer care uh, is kind of a loaded phrase on, on its own.
6: It is. It's, it was really coined in the last um, five to ten years. Um, it's the economic burden in which patients face as a result of their diagnosis and really encompasses... Um, Everything, job loss, um, medication co-pays, chemotherapy, treatments, as well as surgeries, radiation, consultations, and then for their family members as well, who often have to take time off or... um, Need to support them financially.
1: I know there's all different kinds of, of cancers and they're treated in all different sorts of ways. But is there? Uh, can you give us a general idea of how much money it takes uh, on average to care for a patient who gets a new cancer diagnosis? Is there a figure out there like that?
6: I don't think so. It's so varied. Sure. And for each patient and for each cancer, the biology, what you'll end up doing and what they'll end up requiring or responding to, then I don't think that there is a figure out there. It would be nice to have one, <laughs> to quote. Mm-hmm. Um, it's You can get figures for, like, how much each treatment would cost or what the estimated, uh, I do stem cell transplants, what that would cost, but not really Overall,
3: we were talking uh, as we did the introduction, and uh, Dr. Shive said not 60% of doctors don't acknowledge that. And I said, that probably because they don't know either, do most physicians know how much a cancer treatment costs? No. Yeah. No, well. not at all.
6: It, it's difficult because you could give the same therapy to two people, and it could cost wildly different costs because of insurance differences and supplementals and contracts between. It's so complex that frequently you don't know.
1: Do you think physicians should know?
6: I do think that we should know. A better idea, as the person prescribing all of these treatments or um, and the cost helping to incur it, we should get a better idea of what our patients may face.
3: Well, but I, it, as your cancer treatment goes along, if, for instance, if it takes a year for your cancer treatment, there's so many variables that can change in there. I can see how you wouldn't want to say, yeah, it's going to end up costing you $110,000. And then it ends up, you know, quadrupling that.
6: I agree. I don't think there's an exact number you need to quote. I just think that there is. it needs to be acknowledged and discussed that this may be costly and that we need to redress this if you find that insurance won't be covering that or if challenges you face change um, with your family member. I think addressing and acknowledging that there will be a costly portion of this is necessary.
1: But don't new uh, cancer patients and their families, aren't they often referred to a social worker or the business office so that uh, if they do need help covering some of the costs of the of the treatment, that, that we would help them? At least that happens here, doesn't it?
6: It does happen here frequently, but not nearly enough. I think that it should be mandatory for a new diagnosis to have a social worker assessment, or even more so a financial navigator kind of assigned to cancer care because it's it's so specific because our social workers cover the entire clinic. And when you have cancer, it's a, it's a, it's a different animal.
3: What are some misconceptions that cancer patients have about uh, the financial part of being diagnosed with cancer? Frequently,
6: even when you do bring it up, it doesn't matter
4: mm.
6: like there it, it's mm-hmm. you're trying to put a cost on my life and this is life or death and um it's i will figure it out i don't care is a frequent issue and not often do they think it's going to be cheap that mm-hmm. did not <laughs> seem to cross their mind <laughs>
1: Uh, obviously, uh, there's a lot of things to think about that don't have anything to do with finances when you get this diagnosis of cancer. And so maybe the first visit isn't the, isn't the best one to talk about it. But what do you suggest to patients who are newly diagnosed? What, what questions should they ask?
6: I would ask what I anticipate the duration of this treatment to be, and if there are any unexpected costs or um, co-pays that we're aware of, uh, that things that may or may not be covered. I include how much time off work do we anticipate? Could I work? Those are key questions I can make a significant difference on whether or not. They can maintain, A, their insurance, and um, B, whether they can have a continued income during this process, because that's important to know how much time off you or your loved ones will need. Frequently, you need someone with you. It's so much information that a second pair of ears is necessary.
1: When you say that physicians ought to be better informed about the cost of of treatment of the patients that, that do have cancer, you're not suggesting, are you, that if physicians knew Things might change or the type of treatment that they would recommend. That probably wouldn't all change. It's just because it's a good idea for the physician to have in mind some numbers that, that they can give to the patient. So the patient and their family know, correct?
6: Yes. Um, although... Uh Sometimes you could change it. Sometimes there are equally efficacious things. Or
1: Well, why um, wouldn't you always use the cheapest one?
6: (laughs) Well, sometimes the difference is small, and that small difference of clinical benefit or statistical significance was enough. But I think it's worth telling people that these two regimens, this one had this much more clinical benefit but costs a whole lot more. Even if um, you don't change your therapy, if people are more aware, you can identify sometimes people who are more likely to not be able to afford the therapy and preempt the situation beforehand.
1: All right. Well, it's great to have you on the program. I think you're exactly right on when it comes to physicians knowing a little bit more about how much this is going to cost their patients, no matter really, no matter what the diagnosis, but particularly true when it comes to cancer. Dr. Rama Warsami is an oncologist and hematologist as well as a researcher at Mayo Clinic. We've been talking about the financial toxicity of cancer care. Dr. Rama Warsami, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you again. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
3: Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for joining us.